right. Wow. I feel powerful. Strong. Joe, do my bidding. <laughs> uh, sorry, the power went to my head. Um, <laughs> open up to Judges chapter 10. Uh, we're kind of at the halfway point of the book. It's a transition chapter in the book, so it's going to be different. We have two judges to consider, so we're going to we're going to double our fun tonight, but they're both going to be short and uh, kind of uneventful, so <laughs> that's a good way to start a message. This message is going to be uneventful. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this uh, time that you've given us, this opportunity to be together with one another. Lord, I, uh, I thank you for it. It's always a wonderful thing to get together with my brothers and sisters and get into your word and just see what you would have uh, to speak to our heart during this time. And, and may we not take it lightly, this opportunity. Lord, you, you have something for each and every one of us, even through a chapter like this. You desire to speak to us and meet with us to change us even during this short time that we have together. May we take full advantage of it and not miss it as it is before us. And I praise you for it, Lord. I ask all this in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um, after Gideon, right, this, uh, this great leader, we had Abimelech. Um, and Abimelech was just a terrible, evil leader. And they were two very memorable leaders. Now in chapter 10, we have two very forgettable leaders. So it kind of balances out in a weird kind of way. Let's jump into the first one. His name is Tola. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar, and he dwelt in Shamir, in the mountains of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried in Shamir. That's Tola. Um, he gets two verses. He led Israel for 23 years. Uh, I was talking to Tony. Tony was over at, uh, at the house when I was working on this message. And I was sitting there at the computer, and I was you know, typing away and reading commentaries, and I was telling him, hey, you know, I'm having the hardest time with this Tola guy uh, because I just can't think of anything to say about him. I mean, there's no great insight is coming out of the commentaries. Matthew Henry, you should read his commentary on, on this guy. I mean, he says, uh, great men leave behind great legacies, and you can write much of them. Men like Tola, what is there to say? And I was like, <laughs> that's terrible and, and sad. And, uh, and, and David Guzik, I love his commentary. When he gets to Tola, he said, Tola, uh, two verses, 23 years. And I was like, well, that's a brilliant insight. So I copied that. And that's what I began with, if you noticed it. Uh, but I was, I was talking to Tony and I'm like, I just can't find anything on this guy. And Tony, Tony says in, in the wisdom, uh, that, that comes from such a seasoned saint as your worship leader for the night, uh, he looks at me and he says, well, it's in the Bible, and uh, if it's in the Bible, then it's probably there for a reason. And, um, and that made me feel like a terrible person, 
So, so I camped out on these two verses until I could figure out what that reason might be. Because there has to be a reason. Tony's absolutely right. If it's in the Bible, it's there for a reason. There's no mistake about it. Tola. Mark it down. His name means worm. This isn't helping, right? Making him a significant person. His name is Worm. I mean, what a terrible thing to live your life with that kind of name. But, uh, but his name was Worm. I clicked on uh, the, the, the Hebrew word there for Worm, Tola. And it brought up this pop-up window. And this is what it said, for the Tola Worm. It's a specific kind of worm. When the female of the scarlet worm species was ready to give birth to her young, she would attach her body to the trunk of a tree, fixing herself so firmly and permanently that she would never leave again. The eggs deposited beneath her body were thus protected until the larvae were hatched and able to enter their own life cycle. As the mother died, the crimson fluid stained her body and the surrounding wood. Isn't that an interesting picture you have in this Tola worm? This wonderful picture of a mother that fixes herself to the tree, protecting and preserving her children, and leaving upon that tree the mark of the sacrifice that she offered to her children. It's a glorious picture here in Tola of what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's done for all of us because he took each and every one of us to the cross with him. And the crimson stain that was left upon the cross, there marked upon the tree, is a mark for his children, proving their protection, a lasting legacy and testimony of the sacrifice he made for them. We don't know a lot about Tola. What we do know is that he has, with him, uh, with his story, uh, salvific testimony. We know that he saved Israel. It says that in verse 1. And as I was looking up this word Tola, uh, it, it offered in this Greek definition a word of, or, or a verse by correlation. So you can click on that. It takes you to a correlating verse, another time when this word tola appears in the Bible. And it might be worth noting down that it appears in Psalm 22. And you might be familiar with Psalm 22. It's a prophetic psalm, speaking of Jesus and his sacrifice upon the cross. Actually, in the early church, Psalm 20, 22 is often referred to as the fifth gospel because it speaks so clearly of what happens at the cross of Christ. And Psalm 22 will begin in verse 4. It says, In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you or, and, and were saved. And in you they trusted and were not disappointed. Now verse 6, But I, speaking of Jesus, am a worm. This is I am Tola, and not a man scorned by men, and despised by the people. Jesus was made our Tola, and his blood was left upon the tree as a mark of his sacrifice for his children. Made a Tola for our salvation. It's a wonderful little treasure to pull out of this man's life, and a testimony to the truth and wisdom of our great and holy Tony, that if you <laughs> that if you strive over a verse long enough, you'll be able to find the purpose for that verse. And, and it speaks volumes to me personally when I consider 
the salvific testimony of this man, Tola. But next, three verses, a whopping three. But I didn't get any, so I mean, the man's got to be greater. Jair. Verse three. After him arose Jair, a, a Gileadite, and he judged Israel 22 years, so one less year. Now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They also had 30 towns, which are called Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Cammon. Now, Jair. Now he gets three verses, 22 years, and he had many sons and many donkeys. And that's, that's about as much as I got from all my commentaries. Uh, so, <laughs> so again, uh, it was, it was through, through much strife. Uh, that I that I labored over this to bring a word of wisdom to you all. And these donkeys, donkeys uh, d- during this time and even during Christ's time, if you remember the triumphant entry, were a sign of authority. So his sons rode these donkeys and ruled over 30 cities, each one of them assuming authority over a city. Now you can assume that Jair was a polygamist, right? And, and, and at least certain part of me hopes that he was a polygamist because... 30 kids for one woman, that's insane. I mean, that would, like, during her entire span of birthing years, she would have had to have a kid, like, every year. And that would just be terrible. I mean, I'm not a woman, but that wouldn't be the type of life I would want to live. Um, so 30 kids to this man, Jair. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's a lot of kids. Each one of them had a donkey, and each one of them had a city. Jair's name means to shine. And you can note it down. I think it's worth note. Its name means to shine. Now, we don't read in his story that he saved Israel. You never see that in there. All we know that is that he was a leader in Israel. There was no apparent eminent danger during his reign. But we do know that to some degree, he was a good example as a father. Because his children followed after his pattern. I think it's worth noting down about the guy, that he shined to such a degree that his children wanted to emulate his life. Uh, there's something that Chuck Smith used to always say. I'm sure all of you are familiar with Chuck Smith. Uh, when, when I was in Bible college, we had to uh, do his Chuck tracks. You know, so we would listen. Have I already talked about this? I think I have. Haven't I? I don't know. Anyways, I'm going to talk about it again. Um, <laughs> I'm getting old. And Corinne says I'm balding, so I'm really getting old. Has, have any of you noticed? It's insecurity. I'm sorry. Um, but we had to go through the Bible with Chuck, and, and so I, I heard all of his messages in that series, and, and he mentioned several times during that series um, the fact that uh, a movement of God rarely continues on to a second generation. And that always bothered me. You know, and it might be a reality. But it always bothered me. It upset me because why wouldn't it continue to a second generation? You know, if you see the Spirit of God moving, you see the work of God in your midst, and, and you see Him working, and, 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 and you know, the younger people, they, they would want to be a part of it. They'd want to emulate it. They would be excited by it. They would want to continue it. You know, I just think when when, when I see God using people, 
and shining through people. My heart aches to be with them, to come alongside of them, and to continue the work of them. And that's what this man did with his family and with his children and consequently in his community. You know, I had a, had a pastor at my old church, and he retired. And um, he, I mean, he, he, he shined in the pulpit. He was an amazing preacher. And as a young man, as a, as a much younger man, he was about 13-ish, uh, I just, I, I really wanted to emulate him. You know, I just, I wanted to be just like him. I was so stirred up and inspired by him when I would see him shine. And one day he came back from vacation and uh, he stood up there in the pulpit and he said, yeah, that vacation that I went on uh, wasn't really a vacation. I was going to check up on this home uh, that I had, you know, just purchased and I'm leaving. I'm going to go out there. And, and he, in, he was like a cartoon character out the door with bags of money. I mean, he just, uh, he, he had had enough of the church. He'd been done with the church. And he was tired of doing the work of the church. And he got out as soon as he could and took everything with him that he could. And there was this sadness that swept over me to think that we were just a job to him. We were a paycheck to him. We were an obligation to him. And I always thought, well, God help me if I ever feel the same way. Our children, the second generation after us, and for me, I don't have any kids. They would be, you know, the, the youth that I serve. You know, they, they would be the younger people that I'm around. If they view our Christianity as an obligation, as something that we do for maybe no other reason that we can think of than this is just what I always do. This is just what I've always done. And I've got to go to church on Sunday because that's what I do on Sunday. I got to come here on, on Thursday and I got to hear Michael carry on and make me feel bad. You know, and I'm sorry. <laughs> that's not my intention. But I think of myself when, when I see these things. And I think, is mine the type of Christianity that makes people want to be a part of it? That makes others feel like they want to continue it? Or do I act as if I'm inconvenienced by it? Or I'm burdened by my Christianity or bored with it? Or it's a tiresome thing for me to, to endure up under? And if that's the case, then, then, then how desperately do I just need to, to sit before the Lord and to have him shine out upon me so that I can reflect that glory upon others that are around me. It's, it's not something that, that y you need to hear and, and be convicted by, be condemned by. Oh, that's me. Oh, it's become a tiresome obligation to me. Oh, I came here and my children asked me when we were leaving to come here, why do we have to go there? And I said, well, it's just because we have to go there. No, it's, it's, it's something where, where I, I don't need to stir up myself. 
I need to sit before the creator of all things that stirs up all things and that can breathe new life into me as he did when I was first born. And he'll shine upon me and then I'll do what I was created to do, which is merely reflect his glory. And Jair was a man that shined. And it's a glorious legacy that he left behind for his children to follow in suit, desiring to live a life just like their father. But we continue in verse 6. When the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asterisks and the gods of Syria, the gods of uh, Sidon and the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines, they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And they sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. And from that year, they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Ammonites and Gilead. Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah, also against Benjamin, and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. You know, I read this and I think to myself, that's a lot of false gods. I mean, I can't think of a longer list of false gods that I've read in the Bible. I mean, they at this point, they're just, they're worshiping anything. You know, they it's like, what do you got? I'll worship it. You know, that's, I'll, I'll worship the music stand. It's the God of holding things up. You know, it's like, they just, they're gonna, they're gonna give themselves to, to glorify anything rather than the one and true God. It seems like that's the only thing that they're not worshiping here. You know, and, and, and Israel, they were out in the world, they're living the life of the world, they're worshiping the gods of the world, they're worshiping, you know, Ashtoreth, and she's the god of sex. So again, and we've talked about this before, wild parties and orgies. This is the worship they were part of. And you're laughing back there, I'm sorry. It's, it's, I don't love talking about this, but it's in the Bible, right? Sam, you do the same. That's my justification. Um, you know, and, and they, and they got Baal, and they're worshiping him. Right, and and he's the god of money, so it's um, it's it's material prosperity, and and this is what they're pursuing. This is what they're living after, and it's like this is great. This is all I want. This is the life I've always wanted. He who dies with the most toys wins. Happiness is a red Mustang and a sexy someone sitting next to me. And and, and if I just have, and they're going for the job and they're going for the paycheck and and they just want that life. And God says, okay. It, it, wow, someone's getting pushed. I'm sorry, Omar. <laughs> is that your Facebook status or something? <laughs> oh, Red Mustang! Now you just need to get a sexy someone. <laughs> and then you're a pagan. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but uh, you know, it's like, that's, uh, this, is what, this is what they wanted, and God said, okay, great, there you go, you can have it. You can have it. And it's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing when God gives you what you want. But that's exactly what God did to them. He just stepped back and said, okay, if this is what you want, I'll let you have it. And it was a curse to them. And if there's one thing that, that I've learned in my, in my very short life uh, that's been confirmed by those that have lived much longer and more substantially meaningful lives, uh, it's that uh, having a lot of stuff, having a lot of sex, having a lot of anything won't satisfy you because you were designed with a flaw. And your flaw and my flaw 
and our flaw is that we were designed to be singularly satisfied. So you can't just throw anything at a person and expect that to satisfy a person. Because it's not. That's not the way you were built. It's not the way you were designed. You were designed to be singularly satisfied. It's what Solomon learned, and we're talking about Solomon on, on Sundays. And Solomon set out in Ecclesiastes, and he's like, maybe it's education, right? Maybe if I just learn enough, you know, get smart enough. And he says it's empty. It didn't satisfy me. You know, so it's not books. I've never seen a happy nerd anyways, so forget about that. And he sets out for the second thing, love, right? Maybe it's love. And so he gets himself a wife. And, and I'm sure he just, he loved that little wife. And then a week later, they got into their first fight. You know? I asked for medium rare on the steak. And this is, this is medium well. Don't you know how to cook a steak? You know? And so he gets another wife. I'm gonna keep the first life. I'm not a, I'm gonna, the first wife. I'm not a quitter. So I'll have both wives. And, uh, 700 wives later. It's true. 700 wives later. Solomon goes, that's, it's not in wives. It's not in love. I was a fool. What's love got to do with it anyways, right? That's a song. Somebody sang that. I don't know. Um, and he's like, he's like, he's, he's like, forget about love. It's not about love. Love's a fairy tale. Let's be real. It's about lust. I'm going to satisfy my base instincts because we're all an animal anyways, right? That's what we were talking about on Sunday. And is what Solomon believed. He's like, oh, I'm an animal. So I'm not going to go after satisfying my head. I'm not going to go after satisfying my heart. I'm going to go after satisfying uh, the, the, the lowest form of my psyche. So it's just lust. So 700 wives, I'd like you to meet my 300 concubines. And now he has himself a 1,000 women. But I'm not going to marry these women. I'm just going to have sex with these women. But he still felt empty after all these women. So it's not love. It's not lust. It's not education. What's left? I was, you know, why would I live a life to satisfy my organs? Forget about my brain. Forget about my heart. Forget about my bowels. I'll live a life to, to just gain money. Right? That's what will satisfy me. And it says in 1 Kings, right? Is it 1 Kings? I should look at my notes before I, this is being recorded. 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10. It says that, that, that silver was like stones in Jerusalem. Here was a man that was so uh, so wealthy that he just he made a rain on an entire city. And stones, or silver was like stones. They had so much gold that silver had absolutely no value. Here's a man rich beyond our wildest imagination. But he ends his book by saying what? Or he begins his book by saying what? It's all meaningless. It's meaningless. It's, 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 what's the matter with you? How can you have all of this? And say that everything is meaningless. And, and he would, he would stand before us in all of his wisdom today and he would say, I, I realized that I was like a car trying to fill up like Pepsi. Or trying to fill up on Pepsi. And, and, you, and you think, well, that's a very strange analogy. But it's an accurate one if you consider that the, the, the design of a car is to be singularly satisfied. And you're like, well, what about hybrids? Stop. If you consider the design of a car is to be singularly satisfied, <laughs> right? You can't fill up a car on Pepsi, but I like Pepsi. Okay, well, that's nice, but you can't put that in your car. 
Because it's not going to make your car go. It's not going to make your car run. It's not going to bring life and energy into your car. Pepsi's good, right? Just like money, sex, love, uh, all those things, the relationships, they're all, they're all good in their right place. Certainly he took them to sinful, sinful proportions, but they're good in the way that they were created and designed. But they were designed and created for a different purpose, not to bring satisfaction to a soul. You're designed for one thing and one thing alone to satisfy your soul. You know, one of my favorite uh, musicians is Elvis Presley. I love Elvis, right? Maybe, maybe you can tell um, by my ridiculous hair. But and it's not even as it's not even as miraculous as Elvis's hair. This is just sorry. I digress. Um, but Elvis was great, and nobody did it like Elvis. Still, nobody does. Uh, six weeks before he died, a reporter asked Elvis Presley and said, "Elvis." When you first started playing music, you said you wanted to be rich, famous, and happy. Are you happy? No, he replied. I'm lonely as hell. He had everything he ever wanted. Right? He was rich. He was famous. But he wasn't happy. Everything that everyone today is pining after. Everything that everyone today is searching for. Struggling for. This is all I want, and if I want that, or if I get that, then I'll have enough. Then I'll be satisfied. Then I can rest. I can finally relax and take a breath. And Israel found themselves there. They had finally gotten there. But they weren't happy there. They were throwing everything of the world into an empty tank and trying to start the ignition of their life. And they found no energy. And the word that's used to describe them in, in English is distressed. In Hebrew, it's better translated as tied up and bound. They felt trapped and stuck in their situation. They couldn't fathom a way out. In verse 10, we continue and it says, And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? Also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Moanites, I think, oppressed you. And you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you've chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. God answered them only to point out the stupidity of them. And this is a terribly troubling verse, isn't it? So I've saved you. I've delivered you. Time and again, I've been there for you. You keep on turning your back on me. You keep on running to these other gods. So you know what? How about you just call out to them? How about you see if they deliver you? And it's a question that lurks in the back of all of our minds. I can't be the only one. And, 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 and it's a question of when is enough enough with God. And it's and there's usually a story behind the question. When we did a Q&A at Upland, and we would always uh, do a Q&A session at camp for all the, the high schoolers, they would be up there. This would always be one of the questions that would ask. And, you know, through 
great tears and much anguish, someone would approach a microphone and say, you know, I've messed up with my girlfriend, messed up with my boyfriend. Someone would say, I've been in and out of, or, or my, it's usually, you know, a family member, my, my brother, he's, he's been in and out of rehab, and he's really struggling with things. Or they, they'd come up and they'd say, I, I want to stop, but I can't stop. And is there forgiveness for me? Can there be forgiveness for me? Is there ever a point when God is just going to look at me and say, and say, you've messed up one too many times. And I'm, I'm sick of it. I'm done with it. And he's going to look at me the, the, the way that we read this verse and then, and then the way that it tightens our heart with fear when God says to us, I'm not going to save you anymore. I'm not going to deliver you anymore. You're on your own. It's a terrifying thought to consider. And I would usually say something like, no. No, there's there's never going to be that time. Christ knew every sin you would ever commit. Before he died for you, he died for you anyways. He knew what he was getting when he got you. Though you're surprised by the things you do, he's never surprised. You're never going to reach that point. A look of relief would wash over them. They would say, well, do you repent? And they would say, yeah. And I would say, good. Then go your way and sin no more. Because repentance, biblical repentance, the type of repentance that God accepts and responds to, is twofold. And it's a bit deeper than we might consider it to be. Biblical repentance is a change in our mind that results in a change in our direction. So if you're repenting and then turning around and doing the same things that you knew before was wrong, then the reality of it is that you're doing something different. But it's not repentance. And that's an even scarier thing to consider. That a million tears and an overflow of sorrow from a sad heart isn't the same thing as repentance. Uh, If you're not giving up your old life, it doesn't really matter how bad you feel. uh, Because bad feeling and repentance are not the same thing. Uh, And God doesn't respond to them as if they were the same thing. This is a troubling thing to consider. Because when someone feels really bad, and they're standing up there before the microphone, and they're crying out and saying, I've messed up again. Is there life for me? Can there be forgiveness for me? I want to say, by the look on your face, yes. Right? But it has to go deeper than that. The look on your face only denotes a change in your mind. But God only knows if there's going to be a change in your direction. The fruit of that, the reality of that, is going to be depicted in where you go after that. 
It's what you do the next day when you wake up after that. And God's not like a father, the way that we might consider our own fathers, that's going to see his son crying out and is just going to roll over on him and say, well, I saw a couple of tears pour down your face. It's all good. Now get on with your merry way. Yeah, I remember uh, there's actually a video that I saw when I was 13. It's a home video uh, of an Easter family gathering. And um, it was a Mexican Easter family gathering. Not that that has anything to do with it, but I would just like you to know that I'm racially diverse. Um, and I was, I was at their house, and all the parents had set out Easter eggs for all the kids. And, uh, and, and I and all the other cousins, uh, we were all going to go on the Easter egg hunt. Most of them were older than me. I was the next to the youngest in the lot of them. And, and they were like, okay, go, find the Easter eggs. And I watched this video when I was 13, but I was, I was five when it was filmed. And I ran around in circles. And, and I only picked up one egg the entire time that the Easter egg hunt was going on. And I watched all my other cousins in the background of the video, and they're going from bush to bush. And I'm standing out and spinning in the concrete. <laughs> you know, like I had a broken rudder, and I could only, <laughs> could only do right turns, you know. And, and I picked up this one egg that was, as a joke, laying out in the middle of the concrete. You know, it was like, we're not going to hide that one. We'll just leave it there as a joke. And I realized that it was a joke because it was empty. It was, the, the eggs were, they were filled with money, and they were filled with candy, all kinds of goodies. And I came upon the one egg, the only egg that I got that day, and it had absolutely nothing in it. And, and to my chagrin, as a 13-year-old watching this video, not remembering the events of that day at all, I heard the most terrible, shrieking howl come out of me, just wailing, crying. And, and my parents had the camera on me, and, and they're like, Michael, what's wrong? And I'm like, I didn't get anything. And, and I was just, I was, there's a snot bubble and everything, and it was <laughs> disgusting. And, uh, and I heard my dad in the background, uh, and he was like, just, just, just make him stop. Just get him something. And my mom's like, what do we get him? And she's shaking the camera. And, and my dad's like, just get something from Brian. Brian's my brother. And he had like a shopping cart full of eggs. You know, I had the one empty one. And they're like, just give him whatever he wants. Just make him stop. Just, you know, just give him, empty out your wallet. I don't care. You know, it's just, uh, just make him shut up. And, and that's, that's how parents can be. Kids crying. Just give him what he wants. Israel comes before God, and they're crying out, and what does God do? God says, I'm not going to deliver you. You can cry all you want. I know it's behind those tears. And although you're crying out to me, you're still clinging to your idols. So I'm not going to save you. I'm not going to deliver you. Crying and wailing isn't the same as repenting. Israel's a perfect example of that. There's two verses I love on repentance, because I think it gives both the, the sides of the coin on, on repentance. Uh, you can write them down, you can turn there. Ezekiel 18.30. Ezekiel 18.30, a wonderful verse when it comes to repentance. It, it defines it this way. Ezekiel says, repent and turn away from all your offenses. 
That's simple enough, right? It says, repent and turn away from your offenses. And that's Ezekiel. Now, Paul defines or, or uses repentance this way in Acts 26.20. Acts 26.20, Paul says, I preached that they should repent and turn to God. That's interesting, isn't it? There's two motions here that are wrapped up in repentance. What repentance is going to look like when it's authentic, when it's acceptable. He says it's going to involve you turning away from something, and it's going to involve you turning towards God. Both of these are essential. Both of these are necessary. You know, this is what God was waiting for. You know, they were a nation that was crying out, and they were very upset. They had a snot bubble and everything. They wanted deliverance. And God says, you're not turning away from anything. you got to do that. That's the first essential step. Now, I'm not saying that you need to clean up your life before you come to God. That's not biblical. No, but he says, I don't want you to repent to me with your back turned to me. And that's what they were doing. They were talking to God, but not looking at him. He says, no, you turn away from all those things. You just do an about face, you look at me. And when you're looking at me, then you begin to follow me. Begin to take steps towards me. And I'll begin to change you. I'll begin to do a work in you to clean you up and to uh, sanctify you the way that only God can do. So it's going to involve a moving away from something and a moving towards something. Both the steps are essential for repentance to be valid before God. If we don't do both, then it's not repentance. That's the thing of it. It's just something different. It's something else. It's something unacceptable. So in verse 15, we see what happens when authentic repentance is actualized. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Before they had cried out, but they were still clutching to their idols. He couldn't deliver them. So now they cried out and they separated themselves from their idols. They turned away from their offenses and they turned to God. This is what God was waiting for all along. You know, God isn't cruel. I think even in our time, a lot of people still believe that God is just cruel. He's just mean. But you never find that in the Bible. It, it seems like he, he took the first inkling, the first moment, the first slight sign that they were turning away and turning to God to capitalize upon accepting their repentance. He was anxious to get them back. You know, Second Peter uh, 3.9, a verse that I'm sure you're all familiar with, Second Peter 3.9 says that he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He wants us all to come to this place. You know, it's in, 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 it could be uh, very different, right? It could be that we mess up and then just poof, a little cloud of dust. And it's like, where's Tony? <laughs> you know, it's like I, I, he was just there a second ago. Well, I don't know. He must have, uh, he must have sinned, you know, because that's what happens. 
when people sin. They just turn to dust. You know, that'd be terrible. I didn't see him sin. He wasn't doing it. He must have thought something. I don't know. You know, there was evil in that boy's heart. He just called him holy a minute ago. Now he's a sinner. I don't know. But, uh, you know, that's the way we are. You know, God could just, God could do that. He could strike us, consume us. But day in and day out, God is patient with us. And even as Christians, there's still a need for repentance. And you read the book of 1 John and in chapter 1. I mean, John is writing to Christians in 1 John chapter 1 when he says, if we confess our sins, right, then what happens? He's faithful. He's just. He's going to forgive us our sins. You know, so there's this constant need for repentance as we consider the patience of God. Repentance isn't a punishment. Right? Even though that's the way we commonly use it in the church. You know, we have this idea when we consider the word repentance uh, of this fiery preacher standing up on the stage, sweating profusely, you know, saying, repent, or you're going to go to hell. The flames are going to consume you, come up all around you. You know, and it makes God look bloodthirsty and anxious. But he's not. He's patient. He's kind. He, he means to offer to us this extension of repentance in order to set us free to live this kind of life that satisfies our soul in a way that Solomon, king of Israel, and Elvis, king of rock and roll, couldn't, couldn't even imagine. I mean, that's what's, that's what's in repentance. That's the purpose of repentance. It's to bring us in to this type of life where we are singularly satisfied. It's what the whole idea is wrapped around. Repentance unlocks that door. When we come to him like Israel did and say, I don't want this junk and I'm going to turn away from it. I'm done with it. All I want to do is be with you, to walk with you and to serve you all the days of my life. And in saying this, you won't be disappointed in the slightest. You'll see the mercy and compassion of God. You'll see the goodness of God, the overwhelming love of God. And you'll see him use you in small ways to pass that gift and treasure onto other people. God rushes at the first opportunity to accept authentic repentance so that his people can once again be in a right relationship with him so that they can once again be in the light with him so that they could once again experience the life that only comes through him we'll conclude in verse 17 and 18 then the people of ammon gathered together and encamped in gilead and the children of israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah, and all, and the people, um, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And next week, we're going to see this man that God raises up for this moment. And I think you're really going to enjoy him. Jephthah. He's one of my favorite men in the book of Judges. 
uh, another man with a tragic end. So invite you back next week to consider Jephthah. Let's go ahead and conclude our time very early. It was 40 minutes. I blame Tony. Uh, but <laughs> but it is early. So Tony's going to come back up here and do another song right after I blamed him. Lord, thank you for this time that you've given us. Lord, uh, I thank you for your word, the truth that we can find in it. I pray, Lord, that as we do repent to you, as we make this change in our mind, the result would be a change in our life, that we turn away from those things that we know are wrong and turn towards you so that you can begin to do a glorious work of restoration in our heart and soul so that we would shine to those around us your glory to see you do a miraculous work in our community. Lord, we lay ourselves before you, asking you to have your way. In your name we pray. Amen.